Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, this is the Fortations Life to Tape podcast, where we are currently reading the Junior Classics Volume 1, Fairy and Wonder Tales, and we're going to pick up from where we left off. Uh, we are starting the story Little Red Riding Hood by Charles Burdott. Once upon a time there lived in a certain village a little country girl, the prettiest creature ever seen. Her mother was very fond of her, and her grandmother dotted on her still more. The good woman had felt... The good woman had made her for a little wet red riding hood, which became the girl so well that everyone called her Little Red Riding Hood. One day her mother, having made some custard, said to her, Go, my dear, and see how thy grandmother does, for I hear she has been very ill. Carry her a custard and this little pot of butter. Little Red Riding Hood sent out immediately, Little Red Riding Hood set out immediately to go to her grandmother, who lived in another village. As she was going through the wood, she met with a gaffer wolf, who had a very great mind to eat her up, but he durst not, because some faggot makers hard by in the forest. He asked her whether she was going. The poor child, who did not know that it was dangerous to stop and listen to a wolf, said to him, I am going to see my grandmother and carry her a custard and a little pot of butter for my mamma. Does she live far off? said the wolf. Oh yes, answered Little Red Riding Hood. It is beyond that mill you see there, and the first house in the village. Well, said the wolf, I will go and see her too. I'll go this way, so th I'll go this way, and you that, and we shall see who will be there soonest. The wolf began to run as fast as he could, taking the near easiest way, and the little girl went by the longest, diverting herself and gathering nuts, running after butterflies, and making noisegays of such little flowers as she met with. The wolf was not long before he got to the old woman's house. He had knocked on the door, tap, tap. Who's there? Your grandchild, Little Red Riding Hood, replied the wolf, imitating her voice, who has brought you a custard and a little pot of butter sent you by Mama. The good grandmother, who was in bed because she was ill, cried out, Pull the bobbin, and the latch will go up. The wolf pulled the bobbin, and the door opened, and he fell upon the good woman and ate her up in a moment, for it was above three days that he had not touched a bit. He then shut the door and went into the grandmother's bed, expecting a little red riding hood who came some time afterward and knocked at the door, tap, tap. Who's there? Little Red Riding Hood, hearing the big voice of the wolf, was at first afraid, but believing her grandmother had gotten a cold and was hoarse, answered, "'Tis your granddaughter, Little Red Riding Hood, who has brought you a custard and a little pot of butter Mama sends you." The wolf cried out to her, softening his voice as much as he could, "'Put the bobbin, and the latch will go up.' Little Red Riding Hood pulled the bobbin, and the door opened. The wolf, seeing her come in, said to her, hiding himself under the bedclothes, put the custard and the little pot of butter upon the stool and come lie down with me. Little Red Riding Hood undressed herself 
and went into the bed where, being greatly amazed to see how her grandmother looked in her night clothes, she said to her, Grandma, what great arms you've got. That is the better to hug thee with, my dear. Grandma, what legs you've got. The better to run, my child. Grandma, what great ears you've got. The better to hear, my child. Grandma, what great eyes you've got. The better to see, my child. Grandma, what great teeth you have. To eat thee up. And saying these words, the wicked wolf fell upon the Lord riding her, and ate her all up. The Story of the Three Bears by Robert Southley Once upon a time there were three bears who lived together in a house of their own in a wood. One of them was little, small, and wee bear, and one was a middle-sized bear, and the other was a great, huge bear. They had a pot of porridge, a little pot for the little, small, wee bear, a middle-sized pot for the middle bear, and a great pot for the great, huge bear, and they had each a chair to sit in, a little chair for a little, small, wee bear, and a middle-sized chair for the middle bear, and a great chair for the great, huge bear, and they had each a bed to sleep in, a little bed for a little, small, wee bear, and a middle-sized bed for the middle bear, and a great bed for the huge bear. One day, after they had made the porridge for their breakfast and poured it into their porridge pots, they walked out into the wood while the porridge was cooling, that they might not burn their mouths by being too soon to eat it. And while they were walking, a little old woman came to the house. She could not have had a good, honest. She could not have been a good, honest old woman, for first she looked into the window, and then she peeped into the keyhole. And seeing nobody was in the house, she lifted the latch. The door was not fastened, because the bears were good bears who did nobody any harm, and never suspected that anybody would harm them. So the little old woman opened the door and went in, and well pleased she was when she saw the porridge on the table. If she had been a good little old woman, she might have waited till the bears came home, and then perhaps they would have asked her to breakfast, for they were good they were good bears a little rough or so, as the manner of bears is, but for all the good-natured and hospital, hospitable. But she was impertinent and bad old woman and set about helping herself. So first she tasted the porridge of the great huge bear, and that was too hot for her. And then she said a bad word about that. And then she tasted the porridge of the middle bear, and that was too cold for her. And she said a bad word about that, too. And then she went to the porridge of the little small bear and tasted that, and that was neither too hot nor too cold, but just right, and she liked it so well that she ate it all up. But the naughty old woman said a bad word about the little porridge pot because it did not hold enough for her. Then the little old woman sat down in the chair of the great huge bear, and that was too hard for her. And then she sat down in the chair of the middle bear, and that was too soft for her. And then she sat down in the chair of the little small wee bear, and that was neither too hard nor too soft, but just right. So she seated herself in it, and there she sat till the bottom of the chair came out, and down she plumped upon the ground, and the naughty old woman said wicked words about that too. Then the little old woman went upstairs to the bedchamber in which the three bears slept. At first she lay down upon the bed of the great huge bear, but that was too high, and at the head for her, the next she lay down on the bed of the middle bear, 
and that was too high at the foot for her. And then she lay down upon the little small wee bear, and that was neither too high at the head nor too, nor at the foot, but just right. So she covered herself up comfortably and lay there till she fell asleep. By the time the three bears thought their porridge would be cool enough, they came home for breakfast. Now the little old woman had left the spoon of the great bear had left the spoon of the great bear standing in his porridge. Someone has been at my porridge, said the great bear in a great, great gruff voice. And then the middle bear looked at his and saw the spoon was standing in it too. There, the wooden spoons. If they had been silver ones, the naughty old woman would have put them in her pocket. Someone has been at my porridge, said the middle bear in his middle voice. And then the little small wee bear looked at his and there was a spoon in the porridge pot, but the porridge was all gone. Somebody has eaten at my porridge and has eaten it all up, said the little small bear in his little small wee voice. Upon the three bears, seeing that someone had entered their home and eaten up the little small wee bear's breakfast, began to look about them. Now the little old woman had not put the hard cushion straight when she rose from the chair of the great bear. Someone has been sitting in my chair, said the great huge bear in his great gruff voice and the little woman had squatted down on the soft cushion of the middle bear. Someone has been sitting in my chair, said the middle bear in his middle voice, and you know what that little old woman has done to the third chair. Somebody has been sitting in my chair and has set the bottom out of it, said the little small wee bear in his little small wee voice. Then the three bears thought it necessary that they should make further search, so they went upstairs to their bed chamber. Now the little old woman had pulled pillow had pulled the pillow of the great huge bear out of its place. Someone has been lying in my bed, said the great huge bear, in a great rough gruff voice, and the little old woman had pulled the boister of the middle bear out of its place. Someone has been lying in my bed, said the middle bear, in his middle voice. And when the little small wee bear came to look at his bed, there was a boister in its place, and upon the pillow was the little old woman's ugly, dirty head, which was not in its place, for she had no business there. Somebody has been lying in my bed, and here she is, said the little small wee bear in his little small wee voice. The little old woman had heard in her sleep the great gruff voice of the great huge bear, and she was so fast asleep that it was no more than to her the moaning of the wind or the rumbling of thunder, and she had heard the middle voice of the middle bear, but it was only as if she heard someone speaking in a dream. But when she heard this little small wee voice of the little small wee bear, it was so sharp and shrill that it awakened her at once. Up she started, and when she saw the three bears on one side of the bed, she tumbled herself out at the other and ran to the window. Now the window was open, because the bears, like good tidy bears, as they were, always opened their bedchamber windows when they got up in the morning. Our... Out the little old woman jumped, and whether she broke her neck in the fall or ran into the woods was lost there, or found her way out of the woods was taken up by the considerable scent of the house of corrections, for a vagrant as she was, I cannot tell, but the three bears never saw anything more of her. Puss in Boots by Charles Bernard. A miller dying divided all his property between his three children. This was very easy, 
as he had nothing to leave out but his mail, his ass, and his cat. So he made no will and called in no lawyer. The eldest son had the mill, the second son the ass, and the youngest nothing but the cat. The young fellow was quite downcast as so poor a lot. My brothers, said he, by putting their property get together may we gain an honest living, but there was nothing left for me except to die of hunger, unless indeed I were to kill my cat and eat him and make a muff of his skin. The cat who heard all this sat up on his four paws and looking at him, with a grave, wise air, said, Master, I think you had better not kill me. I shall be much more useful to you alive. How so? asked his master. You have but to give me a sack and a pair of boots, such as gentlemen wear when they go shooting, and you will find you no so ill off as you suppose. Now that the young man did not depend upon the cat's words, still he thought it rather surprising that a cat should speak at all and he had before now seen him play a great many cunning tricks in catching rats and mice, so that it seemed advisable to trust him a little further, especially as poor young fellow he had nobody else to trust. When the cat got his boots, he drew them on with a grand air, and slinging his sack over his shoulder, and drawing the cord of it round his neck, he marched bravely to a rabbit worn hard by, which with which he was well acquainted, then putting some brain and bran and lettuce into his bag and stretching himself out beside it as if he were dead, he waited till some fine fat young rabbit, ignorant of the weakness and deceit of the world, should peep into the sack and eat the food that was inside. This happens very shortly, for there were plenty of foolish young rabbits in every warren, and when one of them who was really was as splendid a fat fellow, put his head inside. Master Puss drew the cord immediately and took him and killed him without mercy. Then, very proud of his prey, he marched direct to the palace and began to speak with the king. He was told to ascend to the apartment of his majesty, where making a low bow, he said, Sire, here is the magnificent rabbit killed in the warren which belongs to my lord, Marquis of Carabas, which he told me to offer humbly to your majesty. Tell your master, replied the king politely, that I accept his present, and I am very much obliged to him. Another time Puss went out and hid himself and his sack in a wheat field, where he caught two splendid fat partridges in the same manner as he had done the rabbit. When he pressed them to the king with a similar message as before, his majesty was so pleased that he ordered the cat to be taken down into the kitchen and given something to eat and drink, while enjoying himself the faithful animal did not cease to talk did not cease to talk in the most cunning ways of the large preserves and abundant game which belonged to his lord, the Marquis of Carabas. One day, hearing that the king was intended to take a drive along the riverside with his daughter, the most beautiful princess in the world, Puss said to his master, Sir, if you would only follow my advice, your fortune is made. Be it so, said the miller's son, who was growing dis desolate and cared very little what he did. Say your say, cat. But is but very little, replied Puss, looking wise as a cat can. You have only to go and bathe in the river at a place which I shall show you, and leave all the rest to me. Only remember that you are no longer yourself, but my lord, the Marquis of Carabas. 
Just so, said the miller's son. It is all the same to me. But he did as the cat told him. While he was bathing, the king and all the court passed by and were startled to hear loud cries of help, help, my lord, the Marquis of Carabas is drowning. The king put his head out of the carriage and saw nobody but the cat, who had at different times brought him so many presents of game. However, he ordered his guards to fly quickly to the succor of my lord, the Marquis of Carabas. While they were pulling the unfortunate Marquis out of the water, the cat came up bowing to the side of the king's carriage and told a long pitiful story about how some thieves, while his master was bathing, had come and carried away all his clothes so that it might be impossible for him to appear before his majesty and the illustrious princess. Oh, we will soon remedy that, answered the king kindly, and immediately ordered one of the first officers of the household to ride back to the palace with all speed and bring thence a supply of fine clothes for the young gentleman who kept out of sight until they arrived. Then, being handsome and well-made, his new clothes became him so well that he looked as if he was a marquis all his days and advanced with an air of respectful ease to offer his thanks to his majesty. The king received courteously, and the princess admired him very much indeed. So charming did he appear to her that she hinted to her father to invite him to the carriage with them, which, as you may be sure, the young man did not refuse. The cat, delighted at the success of his scheme, went away as fast as he could, and ran so swiftly that he kept a long way ahead of the royal carriage, he went on and on till he came to some peasants who were mowing in the meadow. Good people, said he in a very firm voice, the king is coming past here shortly, and if you do not say that this field you are mowing belongs to my lord Marquis of Carabas, you shall be chopped as small and mince meat. So when the king drove by and asked those meadow who it was, there was such a splendid crop of hay. The mowers all answered, trembling, that it belonged to my lord, the Marquis of Carabas. You have a very fine land, Marquis, said the majesty to the miller's son, who bowed and answered that it was not a bad meadow. Take it all together. Then the cat came to the wheat field, where the reapers were reaping with all their might. He bound upon them. The king is coming past today, and if you do not tell him that the wheat belongs to my lord, of Carabas, I will have everyone chopped as small as mincemeat. The reapers, very much alarmed, did as they were bid, and the king congratulated the Marquis upon possessing such beautiful fields, laden with such an abundant harvest. They drove on, and the cat always running before, and saying the same thing to everyone he met, that they were to declare the whole county belonged to his master, so that even the king was astonished at the vast estate of my lord the Marquis of Carabas. But now the cat arrived at a great castle where dwelt an org who belonged all the, an org to whom belonged all the land with which the royal carriage had been driving. The ogre was a cruel tyrant, and his tenants and servants were terribly afraid of him, which accounted for their being so ready to say whatever they were told to say by the cat had taken pains to inform himself all about the ogre. So putting on the boldest face he would assume, Puss marched up the castle with his boots on. 
and asked to see the owner of it, saying that he was on his travels, but did not wish to pass so near the castle of such a noble gentleman without paying his respects to him. When the ogre heard this message, he went to the door, received the cat as civilly as an ogre can, and begged him to walk in and repose himself. Thank you, sir, said the cat, but first I hope you will satisfy the traveler's curiosity. I have heard in far countries of your many remarkable qualities, and especially how you have the power to change yourself into any sort of beast you choose. A lion, for instance, or an elephant. This is quite true, replied the ogre. At least you should doubt it. I will immediately become a lion. He did so, and the cat was so frightened that he sprang up to the roof of the castle and hid himself in the gutter, proceeding rather inconveniently on the account of his boots, which were not exactly fitted to walk with on tiles. At length, perceiving that the ogre had resumed his original form, he came down again, and owing that he had very much, he had been very much frightened. But, sir, he said, it may be easy enough for such a big gentleman as yourself to change into a large animal. I do not suppose you could become a small one rat or mouse, for instance. I have heard you can still, for my part, I consider it quite impossible. Impossible, cried the other indignantly. You shall see, and immediately the cat saw the ogre no longer, but a little mouse running across the floor. This was exactly what Puss wanted, and he fell upon him at once and ate him up. So there was the end to the ogre. By this time the king had arrived opposite the castle, and the strong wished to go into it. The cat, hearing the noise of the carriage wheel, ran forward in a great hurry, and standing at the gate said in a loud voice, Welcome, sire, to the castle of my lord, the Marquis of Carabas. What, cried his majesty, very majesty, very pleased, does the castle also belong to you? Truly, Marquis, you have kept your secret well up to the last minute. I have never seen anything finer than this courtyard and these battlements. Let us go in, if you please. The Marquis, without speaking, offered his hand to the princess, who helped her descend, and standing aside, that the king might enter first, followed his majesty to the great hall, where the magnificent dinner was laid out, and where, within more delays, they sat down to feast. Before the banquet was over, the king, charmed with the good qualities of the Marquis of Carabas, said, bowing across the table at which the princess and the miller's son were talking very comfortably together, It rests with you, Marquise, whenever you will marry my daughter, whether you will marry my daughter. I shall be only too happy, said the Marquis, and the princess sat down, eyes declared the same. So they were married, and the very next day, and took possession of the ogre's castle and everything that had belonged to him. As for the cat, he became at once a great lord, and had never more any need to run after mice except for his own diversion. Jack the Giant Killer Retold by Joseph Jacobs In the reign of the famous King Arthur, there lived in Cornwall a lad named Jack, who was a boy of a bold temper, and took delight in hearing of readings of conjurers, giants, and fairies, and used to listen eagerly to the deed of the night of the King Arthur's round table. In those days there lived on St. Michael's Mount of Cornwall a huge giant eighteen feet high and nine feet round. His fierce and savage look were of terror to all who beheld him. He dwelt in a gloomy cavern on the top of the mountain, 
and used to wade over to the mainland in search of prey when he would throw himself a dozen oxen upon his back and tie three times as many sheep and hogs around his waist and march back to his own abode. The giant had done this for many years when Jack resolved to destroy him. Jack took a horn, a shovel, a pickaxe, his armor, and a dark lantern, and one winter evening he came to the mount, and there he dug a pit twenty-two feet deep and twenty broad, and he covered the top over so to make it look like a solid ground. He then blew such a blast on his horn that the giant awoke and came out of his den, crying out, You saucy villain, you shall pay for this. I'll broil you for my breakfast. He had just finished, when taking one step further, he tumbled headlong into the pit, and Jack struck him a blow on the head with his pickaxe and killed him. Jack then returned home to cheer with his friends with the news. Another giant called Bundlebor vowed to revenge on Jack if ever he should have him in his power. The giant kept an enchanted castle in the midst of a lonely wood, and some time after the death of the corpsman, Jack was passing through the wood, and being where he sat down and went to sleep. The giant passing by and seeing Jack carried him to his castle where he locked him up in a large room, the floor which was covered with the bodies and skulls and bones of men and women. Soon after, the giant went to fetch his brother, who was likewise a giant, to take a meal off his flesh, and Jack saw, with terror through the bars of his prison, the two giants approaching. Jack perceiving in one Jack, perceiving in one corner of the room a strong cord, took courage, and making a slip knot at each end, he threw them over his head and tied it to the window bars. He pulled till he had choked them, and when they were back in the, his face, he slid down the rope and scrambled to them, stabbed them to the heart. Jack took a great bunch of keys out of the pocket of Bundlebore and went into the castle again. He made a strict search through all the rooms, and one of them found three ladies tied up by the hair of their heads and almost starved to death. They told him that their husbands had been killed by the giants, who had been condemned them to being starved to death. Ladies, said Jack, I have put an end to the monster and his wicked brother, and I give you this castle and all the riches it contains to make some amends for the dreadful pain you have felt. He then very politely gave them the keys of the castle and went farther on his journey to Wales. As Jack had but little money, he went on as fast as possible, and at length he became a handsome, came to a handsome house. Jack knocked at the door when there came forth a Welsh giant. Jack said he was a traveler who had lost his way, on which the giants made him welcome, and let him into a room where there was a good bed to sleep in. Jack took off his clothes quickly, but though he was weary, he could not go to sleep. Soon after this, he heard the giant walking back and forward in the next room, saying to himself, Though you are here, you shall lodge with me this night. You shall not see the morning light. My club shall dash your brains out quite. You say so, thought Jack. Are these your tricks upon travelers? But I do hope to prove as cunning as you are. Then, getting out of bed, he groped around the room, and at last he found a thick tog of wood. He lay in his own place in the bed, and then finding himself in a dark corner of the room, 
The giant about midnight entered the apartment, and with his bludgeon struck many blows on the bed, and which the very place where Jack had laid the log, and when he went back to his own room, thinking he had broken all about Jack bone, all about thinking he had broken all Jack's bones, early in the morning Jack put a bold face upon the matter and walked into the giant's room to thank him for the lodging. The giant started when he saw him and began to stammer out, Oh dear me, is it you? Pray, how did you sleep last night? Did you hear or see anything in the dead of night? Nothing worth speaking of, said Jack carelessly. A rat, I believe, gave me three or four slaps with its tail and disturbed me a little, but I soon went to sleep again. The giant wondered more and more at this, and yet did not answer a word, but went to bring two great bows of hasty pudding for their breakfast. Jack wanted to make the giant believe that he could eat as much as himself, so he contrived to button a leather bag inside his coat and slip the hasty pudding into his bag while he seemed to be putting it in his mouth. Then the breakfast was over, he said to the giant, now I will show you a fine trick. I can cure all wounds with a touch. I could cut off my head in one minute and put it on sound again on my shoulders. You shall see an example. He then took hold of a knife and ripped the leather bag, and all the hasty puddings tumbled out onto the floor. Oh, it spluttered her nails, cried the Welsh giant, who was ashamed to be outdone by such a fellow as Jack. Her, you can do that to yourself. So he snatched up the knife and plunged it into his own stomach, and in a moment dropped down dead. Jack, having hitherto been successful in all his undertakings, resolved not to be idle in future. He therefore furnished himself with a horse, a cap of knowledge, and a sword sharper, a short sharpness, shoes of swiftness, and an invisible coat, the better to perform the wonderful enterprises that lay before him. He traveled over hills, and on the third day he came to a large spacious forest, through which his road lay. Scarcely had he entered the forest when he beheld a monstrous giant dragging along by the hair of their heads a handsome knight and his lady. Jack, aligned from his horse, and trying him to an oak tree, put on the invisible cloak under which he carried his sword of sharpness. When he came up to the giant, he made several strokes at him, but could not reach his body, but wounded his thighs in several places. At length, putting both hands to his sword and aiming with all his might, he cut off both his legs, and Jack, setting his foot upon the neck, plunged his sword into the giant's body, when the monster gave a groan and expired. The knight and his lady thanked Jack for de their deliverance and invited him to their house, to receive a proper reward for his services. No, said Jack, I cannot be easy till I find out this monster's habitation. So the talking, so taking the knight's direction, he mounted his horse, and soon after came in sight of another giant, who was sitting on a block of timber, waiting for his brother's return. Jack aligned from his horse, and putting on his invisible coat, approached and aimed a low blow at the giant's head, but missing his arm, but missing his aim, he only cut off his nose. On this giant seized the club and laid about him most unmercifully. Nay, said Jack, 
If this is the case, I'd better dispatch you. So jumping upon the block, he stabbed him in the back, and he dropped down dead. Jack then proceeded on his journey, and traveled over the hills and dales, till arriving at the foot of the high mountain, he knocked at the door of a lonely house, and when the old man let him in, when Jack was seated, the hermit thus addressed him, My son, on top of this mountain is an enchanted castle, kept by the giant Galgarius and the vile magician. I lament the fate of the duke's daughter, whom they seized as she was walking into their father's garden, and brought hither transformed into a deer. Jack promised that in the morning, at the risk of his life, he would break the enchantment, and after a sound sleep he rose early and put on his invisible coat and got ready for the attempt. When he had climbed to the top of the mountain, he saw two fiery griffins, but he passed between them without the least fear of danger, for they could not see him because of his invisibility coat. On the castle gate he found a golden trumpet, under which were written these lines, Whoever can this trumpet blow shall cause the giant's overthrow. As Jack, as soon as he read this, he seized the trumpet and blew a shrill blast, which made the gates fly open, and the very castle itself tremble. The giant and the conjurer now knew that their wicked course was at an end, and they stood biting their thumbs and shaking within fear. Jack, with his word of sharpness, soon killed the giant, and the magician was then carried away by whirlwind, and every night and every night and beautiful lady who had been changed into birds and beasts returned to their proper shapes. The castle vanished away like smoke, and the head of the giant Galgarius was sent to the King Arthur. The knights and ladies rested that night at the old man's hermitage, and the next day they set forth the court. Jack then went up to the king and gave his majesty an account of his fierce battles. Jack's fame had now spread through the whole country, and at the king's desire, the duke gave him his daughter in marriage. To the joy of all his kingdom, after this, the king gave him a large estate on which he and his lady lived for the rest of their days in enjoyment and contempt. Tom Thumb, retort by Joseph Jacobs In the days of the great Prince Arthur, there lived a mighty magician named Merlin, the most learned and skilled enchanter the world has ever seen. This famous magician, who could take any form he pleased, was traveling about as a poor beggar, and being very tired, he stopped at the cottage of a plowman to rest himself and asked for, his, asked for some food. The countryman bade him welcome, and his wife, who was a very good-hearted woman, brought him some milk in a wooden bowl and some coarse brown bread on a platter. Merlin was very pleased with the kindness of the plowman and his wife, but he could not help noticing that they, though everything was neat and comfortable in their cottage, they both seemed very unhappy. He therefore asked them why they were so melancholy, and he learned that they were miserable because they had no children. The poor woman said with tears in her eyes, I should be the happiest creature in the world if I had a son, although he was no bigger than my husband's thumb. Merlin was so amused with the idea of a boy no bigger than a man's thumb that he determined to grant the poor woman's wish. Accordingly, in a short time after, 
the plowman's wife had a son who wonderfully could who wonderful to relate was not bigger than his father's thumb. The queen of the fairies, wishing to see the little fellow, came in at the window while the mother was sitting up in bed admiring him. The queen kissed the child and giving it the name Tom Thumb, sent for the, sent for some fairies who dressed her little godson according to their orders. An oak leaf hat he had for his crown, his shirt of web a spider spun, a jacket wove a thistle down, his trousers were of feather done, his stockings an apple rind they tie with eyelashes from his mother's eye. His shoes were made of mouse skin, tanned with the downy hair within. Tom never grew any larger than his father's thumb, but as he got older, he became very cunning and full of tricks. When he was old enough to play with boys, and he had lost his own cherry stones, he used to creep into the bags of his playfellows, fill his pockets, and getting out without ever without their ever noticing him, would again join the game. One day, as he was coming out with the bag of cherry stones, where he had been stealing as usual, the boy to whom it belonged chanced to see him. Ah, my little Tommy, said the boy, so I have caught you stealing my cherry stones at last, and you shall be rewarded for your thieverish tricks. On saying this, he chewed the string round tight around his neck, and gave the bag such a hearty shake that poor little Tom's legs and thighs and body were sadly bruised. He roared out in pain and begged to be let out, promising to never steal again. A short time afterward, his mother was making a banter, a batter pudding, and Tom, being anxious to see how it was made, climbed up to the edge of the bowl, but his foot slipped, and he plumbed over he plumbed over head and ear into the batter without his mother noticing him, who stirred him into a pudding bag and put him into the pot to boil. The batter filled Tom's mouth and prevented him from crying, but upon feeling the hot water, he kicked and struggled so much in the pot that his mother thought that the pudding was bewitched, and pulling out of the pot, she threw it outside the door. The poor tinker, who was passing by, lifted up the pudding, put it in his bag, and walked off, as Tom had now gotten his mouth cleared of the batter, he began to cry aloud, which was so frightened at the tinkerer that he flung down the pudding and ran away. The pudding being broken to pieces by the fall, Tom crept out, covered all over with batter, and walked home. His mother, who was very sorry to see her darling in such a woeful state, put him into a teacup and soon washed off the batter, after which she kissed him and laid him to bed. Soon after the adventure of the pudding, Tom's mother went to milk her cow in the meadow, and she took him along with her. As the wind was very high for fear of being blown away, she tied him to a thistle with a piece of fine thread. The cow soon observed Tom's oak leaf hat, and liking the appearance of it, took poor Tom and the thistle in one mouthful. While the cow was chewing the thistle, Tom was afraid of her great teeth, which threatened to crush him into pieces, and he roared out as loud as he could, Mother, mother, where are you, Tommy, my dear? said his mother. Here, mother, replied he, in the cow's mouth. The mother began to cry, and wringing her hands, 
with the cow surprised at the odd noise in her throat, opened her mouth and let Tom drop out. Fortunately, his mother caught him her, caught him in her apron as he was falling to the ground, he, or he would have been dreadfully hurt. She then put Tom in her bosom and ran home with him. Tom's father made him a whip of barley and straw to drive the cattle with, and having one day gone into the fields, Tom slipped a foot and rolled into the furrow. A raven which was flying over picked him up and flew with him over the sea and dropped him. A large fish swallowed Tom, and the moment he fell into the sea, which was soon after caught and brought for the table of King Arthur, when they opened the fish in order to cook it, everyone was astonished at finding such a little boy, and Tom was quite delighted at being free again. They carried him to the king, who made Tom his dwarf, and he soon became a great favorite at court, for by his tricks and gambles he not only assumed amused to the king and queen, but also the knights of the round table. It is said that when the king rode out on horseback, he often took Tom along with him, as, and if a shower came on, he used to creep into his majesty's waistcoat pocket, where he slept until the rain was over. King Arthur, only, king Arthur one day asked Tom about his parents, which to know if they were as small as he was, and whether they were well off, Tom told the king that his father and mother were as tall as anybody about the court, but in rather poor circumstance. On hearing this, the king carried Tom to his treasury, the place where he kept all his money, and told him to take as much money as he could carry home to his parents, which made the poor little fellow capper with joy. Tom immediately went to produce a purse, with which was made of a water bubble, and then returned to the treasury, where he received a silver three-penny piece to put into it. Our little hero had some difficulty in lifting the burden upon his back, but at least succeeded in getting it placed and set forward on his journey. Without meeting any accident, and after resting himself more than a hundred times by the way, in two days and two nights, he reached his father's house in safety. Tom had traveled forty-eight hours with a huge silver piece on his back and was almost tired to death when his mother ran out to meet him and carried him into the house, but he soon returned to court. As Tom's clothes had suffered much in the battering, batter puddle and the inside of the fish, his majesty ordered him a new suit of clothes and to be mounted as a knight of the mouse. On butterfly wings his shirt was made, his boots of chicken hide, and a nimble fairy blade. Well learned in the tailoring trade, his clothes was supplied, a needle dangled by his side, a drapper mouse he used to ride, thus strutted Tom in a stately pride. It was certain very amusing to see in his dress and mounted on the mouse as he rode out hunt a hunting with the king and nobility who were all ready to expire with laughter at Tom and his fine prancing charioteer. The king was so charmed with his address that he ordered the little chair to be made in order that Tom might sit upon his table and also a palace of gold and span high with a door an inch wide to live in. He also gave him a coach drawn by six small mice. The queen was so enraged at the honor's conferred 
conferred upon Sir Thomas that she resolved to ruin him, and told the king that the little knight had been saucy to her. The king sent for Tom in great haste, but being fully aware of the danger of the royal anger, he crept into an empty snell shell, where he lay for a long time, until he was almost starved with hunger. At last he ventured to peep out, and seeing a fine large butterfly on the ground, near the place of his confined concealment, he got close to it, and jumping astride on it, was carried up into the air. The butterfly drew with him from a tree to tree, and from field to field. At last he returned to the court, where the king and nobility all strove to catch him. But at last poor Tom fell from his seat into a watering pot, in which he was almost drowned. When the king, when the queen saw him, she was in rage, and said he should be beheaded. And when he was again put into a mousetrap until the time of his execution, however, a cat observing something alive in the trap, pattered it about till the wires broke and set Thomas at liberty. The king received Tom again into favor, which he did not live to enjoy, for a large spider one day attacked him, and although he drew his sword and fought well, yet the spider's poisonous breath at last overcame him. King Arthur and his whole court were so sorry at the loss of their little favorite that they went into mourning and raised a fine white marble monument over his grave with the following epitaph. Here lies Tom Thumb, King Arthur's knight, who died by a spider's cruel bite. Who died by a spider's cruel bite? He was well known in Arthur's court, where he afforded a gallant sport. He rode a tilt and tournament, and on a mouse's hunting went. Alive he filled the court with mirth. His death to sorrow soon gave birth. Wipe, wipe your eyes and shake your head, and alas, and cry alas. Tom Thumb is dead. Well, that's it for this episode of the Junior Classics Volume 1. This was the Fotations Live to Tape podcast. I want to thank everyone for coming out, and I will see you next Friday. Bye-bye. Thank you for viewing this Live to Tape video. Live to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye.